This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Last week, Alyssa spoke on Ruth chapters 1 and 2, and I'm going to just briefly recap the story. Naomi and her husband had moved to Moab during a time of famine in Israel. While in Moab, they had had two sons who grew up there, and then they eventually married two Moab women. Then Naomi's husband died, and both and eventually both her sons died too, leaving her a widow and her two daughter-in-laws widows in a foreign land. She heard that the famine had ended in Bethlehem or in Israel, and so she decided to return there in hopes that one of her family members might take her in. So she instructs both her daughter-in-laws, they start making the journey back to her homeland. She tells both her daughter-in-laws, you know, turn back. There's no point going with me because there's not a future for me ahead. I'm past the age of childbearing. Um, I'm not even sure if I can secure a future because they're in a patriarchal society where women's um, future depended upon marriage and ability to have children. So she's basically telling her two daughter-in-laws, it's better for you to go back to your original families than to go forward with me. And as we saw in verse 16 and 17, Ruth beautifully commits herself to Naomi, to her people, and most importantly, to her God. And as Alyssa said last week, Naomi left full. She left Israel full, but she was coming home empty. But what we see here is she's not coming home completely empty. God gave her an amazing gift. He gave her the devotion and love of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, this was a huge risk for Ruth to commit herself to Naomi. A woman's security rested in her relationship to a male patriarch. And here, she was committing herself to a female who had no authority didn't have any children, didn't have a lineage, didn't have property, had no future, had no means to support herself. So the two women returned to Bethlehem, and Ruth immediately kicks into action by taking advantage of the local gleaning laws of the Israelite community. She goes to a particular field and starts gathering along behind the servants, gathering, glean, or gleaning barley and wheat that had been left over from the harvesters. And we soon learn that the landover of the particular field that she's gone to is none other than Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi's. So here's our first peek at seeing God working behind the scenes, his providential hand lovingly guiding Ruth to a field of someone who is a relative of theirs. Ruth continues to work the field for the next few months, and getting the leftovers, and Boaz continues to show kindness to her and protection to her. She stays there, we guess, probably three to five months because it says she went through both the harvest of the barley and the wheat. And as the season is finishing up, the harvest season is finishing up, and throughout that time, as Boaz continues to provide kindness to her and protection to her, we see that in chapter 3, Naomi comes up with a plan. She tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor where the grain is separated from the chaff and to lay at the base of Boaz's feet after he has finished working 
after he's had his drink and his meal and when he's ready to lay down and go to sleep. Now, this seems extremely risky to me. Um, In a Western culture, would you ever tell your daughter-in-law, go lay at that man's feet? (laughs) A young woman in the middle of the night, tell her to dress up, put her nice clothes on, put perfume on, look enticing and beautiful, and go lay at a man's feet. That is frightening. Why such a plan? Why put Ruth at risk in a culture that obviously doesn't value women, where men's rights dominate, it's a patriarchal society, and as Boaz words earlier to Ruth, where he said, stay in my field so that you'll remain protected. I've told my harvesters not to harm you. So obviously, it was risky to be a widow, a young woman in a working man's world without protection. Yet Naomi sends her to that place. Now, this seemed, um, as I said, this seemed unsettling to me. So I started looking into the culture of the time. And what I realized is we have to reset our framework when looking at this Bible, this story. Their culture is not our culture. And that's really hard for us in a Western culture. We have a culture which is bureaucratic and egalitarian meaning we're, governmental, we're government-centered and we have equal rights for all people. Israel's culture was, in contrast, was tribal and patriarchal. That meant the patriarch, the male figure, was responsible for the economic well-being of his family. He enforced the law, whereas our government enforces the law, he, the family patriarch enforced the law. And he had the responsibility to care for everyone in his household, even the marginalized. So that's that's a huge difference, is we've got to identify the cultural difference. Second, there were social customs at play that we're not familiar with. It's easy to misunderstand some of the story here. Naomi was telling Ruth to act in accordance with an Israelite custom and law. It was common in that day for a servant to lie at their master's feet and even share a part of his covering. And this was a, when Ruth did this, it was a symbolic act expressing her willingness to place herself under his protection. It wasn't necessarily a sexual advance. It was understood as a marriage proposal. And by observing this custom, Boaz would recognize what she was asking, that she was asking for protection, and that as the patriarch, he was in the position to provide that. The other thing that I wanted to look at in this, or point out, is that Naomi recognized, she wasn't doing this blindly, she recognized God's providence. She knew that Ruth hadn't ended up in Boaz's field by chance. And I love it when people point out in my life, when they see God's hand at work, because sometimes we don't notice it. Ruth just comes home and says, hey, I was, ended up being gleaning barley in this guy's field named Boaz. And Naomi says, She recognizes, she says, that's God. God puts you in our kinsman redeemer's field. That's not by chance. That's a provision of God. We need those friends in our lives who point out where God is working because so often we can't see it in our ordinary everyday circumstances. Excuse me. We also see that Ruth knew her daughter Naomi, her daughter-in-law Naomi. She knew that she was a woman of character and integrity 
that she knew that putting her in that situation, um, that Naomi would know what to do and understand what she was doing. And Naomi recognized that Boaz was a man of character. He had shown generosity to their family and kindness by his actions towards Ruth. He was not a predator. She knew he would act honorably towards Ruth. And so she was not putting her daughter-in-law in any danger. So Ruth did as Naomi advised. She went to the threshing floor and waited until Boaz had finished working and had laid down to sleep, and then she laid down at his feet. In verse 3-9, Boaz wakes. He's startled at midnight, and his feet suddenly touch the body of a woman. And he asks, verse 9, who are you? He asks. Ruth says, I am your servant. And then she says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Ruth immediately makes her objective clear when she's asked what she's doing there. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, the act of spreading a garment over someone signified a marriage proposal and is used in passages, other passages in the Bible, such as Ezekiel 16.8. And this practice is still um, happening in some Arab cultures where a man's gesture of putting a garment over a woman is a symbol of him deciding to take her as his wife and declaring that he will protect her and he's willing to enter into a marriage relationship with her. And then also in her words, when she said spread the corner, the word corner, the Hebrew word for that is kanap, which also means wing. So essentially, Ruth is now, if you remember in verse 212, Boaz had prayed that Ruth might be rewarded for the Lord by those whose wings she had taken refuge. That was his blessing over her. Essentially now, Ruth is repeating what he has said to her. She's saying, may I be protected by your wings. May you protect me. May you cover me. So it's a poetic image that, is a, that reminds Boaz of the blessing that he had said to her earlier. And then she says the reason why. And she says, since you are my kinsman redeemer, which the Hebrew word for that is goel. <clears throat> now, this is interesting. The kinsman redeemer, that word, that specific word, is found only in the book of Ruth. A kinsman redeemer is a title that describes a role given by the law in Leviticus to a man who would... <clears throat> losing my voice. <clears throat> to a man who would help his family member in distress by redeeming them. So as you looked in your study, it said the law of Israel declared that a kinsman redeemer was responsible to redeem a relative who had fallen on hard times or needed rescue. And in your study, it had us look up Leviticus and verses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So Boaz was the kinsman from Ruth and Naomi's understanding, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz must have already considered this option of providing for Ruth and Naomi. He must have been thinking through this because his answer to them, show, or to Ruth, shows that he'd been thinking about it already and he already had investigated and looked and knew that there was someone who was a nearer relative, someone who was a closer kin than him. And that that man had the first right to redeem Ruth, the land, and Naomi. Ah, thank you, Dana.
Thank you. So Boaz says, you know, let me do some work. He sends Naomi, or he sends Ruth home, and he makes sure that she goes home before the sun comes up. He doesn't want anyone to see her there so that her name might be discredited or that they might make assumptions about what happened. And then he heads immediately into the city gates where the business of the local community was transacted. So to redeem Ruth, he must buy back the land of her deceased husband. That's the first step. He must take both Ruth and Naomi into his household. That's another step. And then he must father a child, thereby giving Naomi's deceased husband an heir to whom the inheritance will pass. So there's a lot of commitment there. That's a huge commitment that he's considering. And in Ruth 4.6, we learn that he first goes to that relative in the, with the witness of 10 others, as demanded by the law, and he asks that closer relative if he's interested in buying back the, li- buying back the land. And that relative first says, oh, sure, I'll buy back the land, because he thinks, oh, more land, that's great. We'll just add to my, to my inheritance, to my property. But then Boaz says, well, if, you also, if you're buying back the land, you also need to marry Ruth. So there is a catch there. And then the, the closer relative says, well, no, that's too much of a burden. That's, he thinks over it, and he says, that's a financial burden. I'm not going to accept that. And so at that point, Boaz says, well, I will. And then an agreement is reached. And it's ratified, and I love this, by exchanging a sandal. Wouldn't we love that, ladies? We could exchange shoes. <laughs> you just find someone you like and say, let's make an agreement. And I like your shoes. <clears throat> Get a lot of cute shoes that way. But again, that's a custom that we're not familiar with, and it has significant meaning to their culture. Taking off a sandal and passing it had the same force in Israel in those days as signing a contract in our day. So the last verses of that ends the book, the transaction. Um, Boaz can marry Ruth. The last verses of the book I love. It says a ch- they had a child named um, Obed, which means servant. And that child became the grandfather of Israel's greatest and most godly king, David. And we know that David is the ancestor of Christ. So through this act of redemption, we see Christ's line falling forth. So what do we learn from this story? The first thing I was, wanted to point out is that what we learn is that no one is beyond God's reach. It's so interesting that there's numerous laws in Israel's society targeted at the protection of the least, the lost, the last, the marginalized. There's laws of gleaning, there's laws for kinsman redeemer, and there's laws for the land. All three of those laws protect someone who has been marginalized, someone who has lost everything, someone who has become desolate or empty or unworthy. These three laws protect that person and give them rights to provide and to have a source and to have a hope. The second thing that points out that no one is beyond God's reach is the fact that Ruth is from Moab. Now, Moab, if you did a little research, you'll realize that that nation is one of Israel's enemies. And its origin, Moses wrote about its origin in Genesis 19, 30 through 38. And it's not a pretty story. 
Moab warred against Israel, it rebelled against Israel, and it worshipped other gods. They were a pain in Israel's butt. But Ruth is an important reminder that even though, no matter what background you come from, God still sees someone of worth. Even though the Old Testament people, the Hebrews, were God's chosen people, God was always having a plan of grafting in the Gentiles, those who were other. And he always gave them opportunities to find personal relationships with him. If you'll note, um, if you look ahead in Matthew chapter 1, it's very cool. You'll see that the bloodline of Christ is listed when we head to the, the New Testament and look at that gospel. And as I said, the, in this time period, it was patriarchal. And so women were not typically named in a lineage. But in Matthew 1, you'll see something unusual. You'll see that there's actually four women named as Matthew describes the lineage of Christ. And one of those women is Ruth. How amazing is that, that a Moab, an enemy, a woman, a desolate, widowed woman from an enemy state would be included in God's kingdom and not just in his kingdom, in his lineage. No one is beyond God's reach. God sees everyone as valuable. God's redemption is for all people, not just for the Jews, not just for the righteous, but rather for the unclean, for the foreigner, for the sinner. Anyone who believes is welcome. Isn't that comforting, ladies? It's not what we do. It's not what we're worth. It's not that we've earned our worth. His redemption is for us. The second thing I want to point out that we learn from this story is that God is our kinsman redeemer. Some people look at this and see Boaz as the hero, but you look at what Boaz was a picture of was God's relationship to the church, to believers. Now, in this, this story, the word redeem is used 20 times. And the word redemption, I put the definition up here on this slideshow, it says, to pay a price in order to secure the release of something or someone. It connotes the idea of paying what is required in order to liberate from oppression, enslavement, or another type of binding obligation. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security. I love that. Restored to a place of security is what redemption indicates. Redemption was the place that someone went from empty to full. Remember Naomi returned empty? Well, here, through redemption, God makes Naomi and Ruth full again. The two women were barren, they were widows, they were desolate, they were outcasts in society, they were demoted to the margins, Um, and as I said in Ruth's case, she was from a foreign tribe, she was probably looked down upon, maybe uh, racial slurs were were pointed in her direction, and words said to her. She was a servant, she went behind the servants in the field to glean. She was the lowest of the low. And yet we see God in Boaz 
redeeming her, entering into a marriage covenant with her, saying, you are worthy to be my bride. You, Ruth, can be my bride. God is the patriarch presenting himself to her. He is willing to put his own resources on the line to ransom his beloved, to redeem what has been lost, to redeem what has been viewed as barren, desolate, worthless. And not only has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, our God has sent his most cherished member of his household, his firstborn, to accomplish this intent. Can you imagine this story to the people, to the Israelites in a patriarch society? They're thinking, he sent his firstborn. He was willing to give up his firstborn to redeem someone who, in our opinion, was worthless. And not only is the firstborn that he sent coming to seek and to save the lost, but he's coming to share his inheritance. It says in Ephesians that we will sit in the heavens that we currently sit in the heavens with Christ, that we sit with him and we are part of his inheritance. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done on the cross. So what was Yahweh's goal in showing us the story of Boaz redeeming someone who was worthless? It shows that he's, his goal is to restore those who are lost, to bring those who are lost back into the household He is our kinsman redeemer, the one who loves and is willing to sacrifice it all so that we might be with him and share his inheritance and be part of his household for eternity. Remember where Jesus says, I'm going to to prepare a place for you? It's a beautiful picture. We are part of his household. He's going to prepare a room for you because he's invited you in to his household. I recently listened to the lyrics of a song called Redeem by Big Daddy Weave. And as I was listening to it, I could picture Ruth in my mind. And I just want to read you the lyrics. And as I read them to you, I've got them up on the screen too. I just want you to think about Ruth or perhaps your own story. The first verse starts like this. It seems like all I could do was see the struggle, haunted by the ghosts that lived in my past, bound up in shackles of all my failures, wondering how long is this going to last? All my life, I've been called unworthy, named by the voice of my shame and regret. But when I hear you whisper, child, lift up your head, I remember, oh God, you are not done with me yet. Because I don't have to be that old person inside of me, because her day is long dead and gone. Because I have a new name, a new life, I am not the same and a hope that will carry me home. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. Yes, I'm not who I used to be. Oh God, I'm not who I used to be. Jesus, I'm not who I used to be. Because I am redeemed. Thank you, God. I am redeemed. Ruth was no longer who she used to be, and neither was Naomi. They had left Israel full. They had returned empty and desolate. And now Yahweh had made them full again. That is what our Redeemer does. 
all the old labels that we carry are gone. All those old um, identities we have of calling ourselves rejected or outsider, unworthy, barren, desolate, those are replaced in this act of redemption. He redeems us. He's given his son for us. He calls us beloved. He calls us precious. He calls us chosen, treasured, worthy. God's redeemed us, and as part of that, we can share his redeeming love with the people around us. So I wanted to ask you this morning, as we look at this story, we saw that Ruth loved Naomi when she didn't feel like she was worth living or worth loving. She committed herself to Naomi when she had nothing to offer. Boaz loved Ruth when she felt like she wasn't worth loving. He committed himself to Ruth when she had nothing to offer, when actually when it cost a great deal to commit himself to her, a great personal cost he committed to her. So this morning, who might God be asking you to love who might not feel like they are worth loving? And what might it cost you? What are you willing to give up because your Redeemer has given up all for you? Let me pray. Lord, we are unworthy, but you, we praise you because you have made us worthy. We praise you that we are redeemed, that like Ruth, we were foreigners, we were desolate, we were distant, we were enemies. Yet in that state, Lord, you didn't see us as unworthy. You saw us as worthy. And you sent your son, the greatest gift, and redeemed us. We praise you, dear Lord, for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.